0: Indeed, the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And this one, the one who is deserving of all the glory, summons us to behold him in his word, that we might be changed into his likeness. So friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me now in your copy of the scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we will look at the text from verse 23 all the way to chapter 11, verse 1. Now, in this passage, Paul picks up a theme that he began in chapter 8. You Remember what he said in chapter 8? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This is what those rights-demanding Corinthians had failed to grasp. They had failed to grasp that the highest good of the Christian life is not personal freedom or individual rights. The highest good is the glory of God. And how is God glorified? By a clear covenantal allegiance to Christ and a demonstration of Christian love. So we publicly acknowledge Christ before men. We show that we are not ashamed of the gospel. And do all things for the building up of the body of Christ. Paul teaches us that knowledge rightly understood and applied produces Christ like love. This is a love that does not seek its own, its own interests, but seek to, seeks to strengthen and encourage the faith of other believers, while at the same time clarifying what that faith is. This is a love that makes much of God and the gospel in every context. And so Paul says to these spiritually overconfident Corinthians that eating religious meals at an idol's temple doesn't glorify God. Instead, it provokes Him. Such behavior not only puts them in spiritual danger, exposing them to the demonic But it also endangers the faith of others, and it obscures the gospel. Instead, as those who belong to Christ, we are called to imitate him. We are called to imitate Christ and not culture. So let's now ask the Lord for his help as we look to his word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would now help us understand what true Christian freedom is. Help us put on the mind of Christ that we may walk in love and build your church and bear a clear witness to the gospel of our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen. Last month, the Gulf News ran an opinion piece on the Freedom House. If you have never heard of the Freedom House, it is a non-profit organization that conducts research and advocacy on democracy, political freedom, and human rights. The Freedom House also annually rates countries on its Freedom Index. And this particular writer did not appreciate it that the Freedom House had lowered his country into a partly free category. And so he wrote this in response. How free is free? And who is to decide? These are questions that all states and societies must answer for themselves. If someone else is to adjudicate in these matters, wouldn't that be a sign of external interference and proof of lack of freedom? Now, what this writer is demonstrating in this article, by the use of that word freedom, is what most people think of when they think of freedom. Freedom, they think, is self-determination, self-government. And while this definition may be of value in negotiating problems between countries, it's problematic for daily living because it is a godless definition. Human beings are covenantal creatures made in the image of God to be dependent On Him, we owe Him our allegiance. We owe Him our love, our trust, and our obedience. To live independently of God is inhuman, and it does not bring Him glory or honor. God has so created us to be creatures of His Word, to be dependent on His Word, and to have our lives governed by His Word. The Bible's definition of freedom, on the other hand, is evangelical. So John Webster defines evangelical freedom as freedom announced in the gospel. True freedom begins by recognizing that we are not autonomous creatures. No, we were created to glorify God. Apart from God, we are slaves to sin and Satan. But through the message of Christ and Him crucified, through the gospel... We are set free from the law of sin and death. This freedom comes from knowing, from being known by God and then entering into a fellowship with Him through Christ's new covenant work. You Remember what Jesus said in John 8:32: you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And having been set free as reconciled creatures, We are now free to make much of the one who freed us and to serve one another in love. Brothers, do you see that the freedom that we have been given as Christians is a freedom from the bondage of sin and the freedom to serve our brothers and sisters in love. So it's a freedom that looks away from itself. It helps us look away from ourselves and to others. And whenever we use our freedom in this way, God is glorified. And this is what Paul wants the Corinthians to understand. And so there are four important truths, four important theological truths that we can learn from this passage. Number one, God is glorified when we use our freedom to flee idolatry and build up others. God is glorified when we use our freedom to flee idolatry and spiritually build up others. Look at verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Now this phrase, all things are lawful, was a Corinthian saying. This is why it appears in in quotes uh, in your Bibles. The first time it appears and is addressed by Paul is in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. So it seems that some of the leaders at the church began to use this saying to justify their actions, like eating religious meals at the temple. I'm free in Christ to eat whatever I want and wherever I want, they said. I have the right to do anything. And Paul says, hold on. But not all things are helpful. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. But there's more to freedom than just doing what you want. You see, that's a very self-centered, self-serving view of Christian freedom. It's not making much of God. It's making much of you. Now, I want to make a comment on this word helpful. Helpful. You see, modern evangelicals have a very skewed understanding of what this word means and tend to use it improperly. So, for example, let's say you're doing the right thing. You are biblically instructing someone or counseling someone or correcting someone, and you're doing it in love. But the person responds by saying, that's not helpful. What they mean by that is, I don't like it. I don't prefer it. I don't want to hear that because it's making me uncomfortable. Well, Paul is not using that word in that way. What Paul means is that the way that they were exercising their freedom was not beneficial or spiritually profitable for them. By eating these religious meals at the temple, they were committing idolatry, if you remember. They were demonstrating allegiance to these false gods by their presence at the table. They were entering into communion or fellowship with demons who stood behind these idols. Friends, any action that tempts you to sin or leads you to sin or hinders your growth in holiness is not helpful. It's unprofitable. Paul makes this clearer by telling them that they were provoking the Lord to jealousy by doing that. Brothers, the cross of Christ has set us free from the power of sin. You know that. If anything leads us into slavery, into communion with falsehood, or as you heard from Psalm 24, if we lift up our souls to what is false, if it rules our lives instead of Christ, then we're not living according to the wisdom of the cross. Freedom that leads to idolatry and sin is not true freedom. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and of the table of demons. If these Corinthians were living by the wisdom of the cross, if they were trusting in the gospel, then they should have recognized this and exercised self-control by the power of that same gospel. To do what? To resist those invitations. This is what it means to run well and not aimlessly, to run for that imperishable prize. You glorify God when you say no to idolatry, when you trust in his faithfulness to help you endure, when you say no to that temptation, when you resist those social and cultural pressures to join a religious meal. But that's not all. Paul writes another rebuttal to the saying, all things are lawful. He says, but not all things build up. That phrase, build up, is a construction term. To build up means to build up the body of Christ. This is a spiritual building up. And that tells you that in this passage, the helpfulness or the benefit that Paul is after is mainly the spiritual benefit of others. You see this term in 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love, what? builds up. Or First Corinthians 14, 16-17. How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Or take First Peter 2, 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Paul is concerned about those believers who had weak consciences. If you remember in chapter 8 verses 10 to 11, he admonishes those puffed up Corinthians for causing those weak brothers to sin. They were being careless with their own souls and with the souls of others. They were not acting in love towards these brothers. In fact, their example was having a negative impact on their faith. And Paul says, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, he is destroyed and not built up. Beloved, Christian freedom that is not regulated by love, A love that is Christ-like does not glorify God. To exemplify the love of Christ is to deny oneself for the good of the body of Christ, which is why Paul says in verse 24, the next verse, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. The New King James reads like this, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Where does Paul get this understanding from, that we, we must use our, our freedom in this way? Well, he gets it from Jesus himself. Beloved, this lies at the heart of the gospel. This is the wisdom of the cross, for it is on that cross we see love defined for us. We see the one who did not seek his own, but came to seek and save the lost. We see a love that is sovereignly free and yet in His incarnation, is not self-seeking. He is true and just, but is also kind and bears all things. Listen to how Paul explains our Christian obligation to spiritually build one another up. Listen to Romans 15, verses 1 to 3. We who are strong, he means strong in the faith, those whose consciences are Rightly informed by the word. We who are strong have an obligation. Right? That means duty. That's duty language. We have an obligation, as Christ's servants, to bear with the failings of the weak. He means those who are weak in the faith. Those whose consciences are wrongly informed. We have an obligation to bear with the feeling, failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. Why? Why should we do that? Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Jesus took our sins so that it would go well with us. Friends, this is the goal. This is what we have been set free to do. You don't want to wound or pressure people with weak consciences, which is what these Corinthians were doing. No, you want to bear with them. You want to love them and build them up with the word. And sometimes that'll look like restricting your freedom for the good of others. So if you are in the presence of weak Christians... And by that, I mean those who who think that, let's say, for example, those who think that drinking alcohol is a sin. Well, then don't drink in their presence. This is someone for whom Christ died. Brothers and sisters, loving your brother ought to mean much more to you than foregoing a glass of wine. Enjoy your drink to the glory of God in his absence. Or enjoy your drink with other believers who are strong in the faith, who are mature and have self-control. If you have a brother or a sister who was saved, perhaps from a Muslim background, and it wounds their conscience to eat pork, well, don't serve them pork. Don't eat pork in their presence. It will put pressure on them to eat when they haven't yet worked out their theology. They might eat out of social pressure because you're eating. But remember, they won't be eating in faith. And that means they will be sinning against the Lord. Remember what Paul says in Romans 14, verse 23. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Here is someone you want to be loving towards and patient with. Freedom that is regulated by love glorifies God... Because it makes much of Jesus. It is Christ-like love in action. Now, a lot of people tend to apply this principle wrongly. They tend to read this but apply it wrongly. So D.A. Carson in his book, The Cross and Christian Ministry, gives us this example where one situation might get confused with another. So this is Carson writing, and I quote, Supposing some senior saint, an older believer, comes up to you and says, I want to tell you that I am offended by your drinking. Paul tells us that if anyone is offended by what you do, you must stop it. Stop it. I am offended. Therefore, you must stop it. How would you respond? Carson writes, the senior saint is simply manipulating you. He is not a person with a weak conscience who is in the danger of giving into drinking because of your example and thus wounding his conscience. No, that would be the Corinthian scenario. Far from it. If this man sees you drinking, he will probably denounce you in the most unrestrained terms. In his eyes, he is the stronger person, not the weaker. In other words, this case is not like the one Paul had to deal with. In this case, it might be wise to tell this man, brother, I'm sorry that you have such a weak conscience. He will probably be so unclear as to what you mean that he may actually leave you alone for a couple of weeks. End quote. So do you see how this works? Your liberty should not be determined by this man's weak conscience. On the other hand, here's how to rightly apply it. On the other hand, if you are someone who enjoys a drink and you are discipling some spiritually immature young men who have no self-control in many areas and they see you drinking in their presence and because of your example, they start drinking, they get drunk and fall into all kinds of immorality, you have now become an accessory to their substantial destruction. To use a phrase from Carson. Brothers, it is a loving thing for you to restrict your freedom, to do things out of love, out of spiritual concern for others. Be mindful. Be mindful. But it's also important to remember that the thing that you want to do is not sinful in and of itself. So keep that in mind. And this brings us to our second point. God is glorified when we recognize His Lordship over all things. Over all things. See, Paul has made it clear that believers should not eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols at the temple. But what should a Christian do if that meat was sold in the market and he knew that this was the meat that was sacrificed to a pagan god? What should he do? Now, brothers, you have to remember that Corinth had a very prominent temple culture. There were several temples dedicated to many pagan gods, all of them, Represented by idols and people would regularly go up to these temples and offer sacrifices to these gods. After these sacrifices were offered, some of the meat would be uh, taken away by the priests, some sold in the marketplace, and some were eaten by the worshippers at the temple itself. So religion pretty much drove the economy much like it's doing here in the month of Ramadan. And so the Christian who went to buy beef for biryani or oxtail for kare-kare, he knew that whatever he was buying at the marketplace was at one time slaughtered by a pagan priest and offered to a demon, probably. Just like we know today that the meat we get at the supermarket is halal, probably enforced by the municipality. And that means it was killed by an adult Muslim who pronounced the Muslim God's name over it before killing the animal. So what should the Christian do? Some of you raised these questions after listening to last week's sermon. What does Paul say? Look at verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Paul says when you're buying meat, In a non-religious setting, listen carefully, the setting matters, the context matters. When you're buying meat in a non-religious setting, like the meat market, you do not have to say to your butcher, I'd like to know the religious history of this chicken breast, please. No, don't raise any question. Buy it and eat it. Notice that word, whatever is sold without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Whose conscience? Your conscience. Why your conscience? Because you are aware that this meat would have been offered to a false god. So why is it okay to take it back home and eat it? Well, look at verse 26. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Paul here quotes Psalm 24, verse 1, and he says that everything belongs to the Lord Jesus. Colossians 1:16, all things were created through him and for him. He is the king of glory, as Ryan read. And when we recognize and believe that the triune God we worship holds sovereign sway over all that he has made, we bring him glory. This is in keeping with what Paul has already said in chapter 8, verses 7 to 8. And chapter ten, verses verse nineteen, food offered to idols is nothing. So what if that food that is being sold was offered in the past to a Hindu god or a Muslim god? Paul says that animal belongs to my God. Everything that creeps and crawls and runs and flies, they all belong to the triune God that we worship. He created them all, and He owns them all. All things exist for Him and are to be used for His glory. And so how do we honor God? Well, we buy that meat, we take it home, we cook it, you pray, you thank the Lord. That's the only offering that the Lord desires, an offering of thanksgiving, and you eat it. Raise no questions. See, this is also similar to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 to 5. Paul was concerned that there were some who were inspired by demons to teach that you should abstain, or not eat certain foods. And he says, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So buy whatever is sold in the meat market. That meat is not demon-possessed. Take it home and eat it to the glory of God. That's what food was made for. Your allegiance to Christ is clear. And you are not participating or promoting idolatry. The issue is not the food, it is the setting. It's the context. So whatever is sold in the supermarket, irrespective of where it came from, don't raise any questions. Once you take it home, you are eating in a different setting, by yourself or with other believers. And according to Paul, that does not condone or promote idolatry. But then the Corinthians ask, well, what if it's a different context? What if the setting is now in an unbeliever's home, in a pagan's home? How do I handle that invitation? Well, this brings us to our third point. God is glorified when we sometimes refuse to eat to make the gospel and our allegiance clear. God is glorified when we sometimes refuse to eat to make the gospel and our allegiance clear. Look at verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, so this is at your non-Christian buddy's home, and you are disposed to go, you desire to to go. Notice the freedom. You have the freedom to go, or if you don't want, don't go. If you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Notice that Paul's response is identical to verse 25. Eat it. Don't raise any questions on the grounds of conscience. Give thanks and eat it to the glory of God. Eat like a Christian. Again, you do not have to raise any questions. Even though you know that your Hindu friend would have probably offered prayers to his idol before he cooked the food. This is the case when you go to a restaurant, another non-religious setting run by Hindus or Muslims. It doesn't matter. Eat whatever is set before you. Don't abuse that food. Use it in the way that God intended it to be used. Eat it for His glory with a thankful heart. Now, is there ever a time when you should refuse? Absolutely. Look at verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. What changed? Someone said something. This has been offered in sacrifice. The word that is translated as offered in sacrifice is a different word than the one used in chapter 8. There, the phrase used is food offered to idols. It, It has a negative connotation. Here it takes on a slightly positive note. This is food offered to a deity. This is a a holy food. And this tells us that the someone informing the Christian is probably your unbelieving friend, the unbelieving host. You see, until this point, the food could have been eaten. But the moment your non-Christian friend says, this has been offered in sacrifice... You can substitute whatever you want there, whether it's an iftar meal or an onam meal or a prasad or if it's offered in the name of St. Jude. If it's been offered in sacrifice, Paul says, do not eat it. That's an imperative, it's a command. Why refuse? Because the moment that meal gets defined, the moment someone gives it religious significance, Remember, you are eating. You're not buying in a non-religious setting. You are eating in the presence of a non-Christian. And the moment that happens, this becomes a public test for your covenantal allegiance to Christ and the gospel. Hence, Paul says, refuse. So that means you refuse in order to make a point in order to make a point. That's how you glorify God, by not eating. Why are you not supposed to eat it? Look at the text. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. You refuse for the sake of the one who informed you. For the sake of the one who assigned religious significance to the meal. The moment the meal gets religiously defined in this setting... This is how Paul wants us to see it. As a God-sent opportunity to glorify God and the gospel. Refuse for the sake of conscience. Now, wait a minute. I thought my conscience was clear. Even though in all likelihood this might have been offered to some pagan god. It's my non-Christian friend's home. I thought it was okay to eat it. Not to raise any questions. Yes. That was before he informed you. But now... Your eating will mean something to him. It will mean something. Paul clarifies, look at verse 29. I do not mean your conscience, but his, for the sake of him. Friends, all human beings have a conscience. God has given us a conscience. You see that in Romans 2.15. And when you find yourself in this situation, God is providentially giving you an opportunity to make your witness clear. Refuse it, not for your sake. No, you're eating it to the triune God's glory. But for your unbelieving friend's sake, to make a point. So that he knows that you belong to Christ and your allegiance is clear. Tell him that you will not provoke the God who saved you by his grace. Tell him that the triune God alone is the one true God to whom all things belong and that he is jealous for his glory. Tell your non-Christian friend that he has not lived for God's glory and that he will give an account for that. No amount of fasting or religious feasting will earn this God's favor or thwart his judgment. Tell him how this God sent his Son. Who offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement on that cross for our sins? Tell them that whoever turns away from their false gods and idolatry and sin and calls upon the name of his son Jesus, whoever trusts that he is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, they can be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God. Friend, if you are here and you're not a Christian, this is the God. To whom we give thanks when we eat as Christians. And the message of the Bible is that sadly you have not acknowledged him. You have not given him thanks. And for that God stands over you in judgment. But if you turn away from your sins and you put your trust in the saving death of his son. You will be forgiven of your sins and receive eternal life. Friend, you have nothing to offer Him except your sin. But you have everything to gain if you receive Him by faith. Call on the Lord Jesus. There is no salvation. There is salvation in no other name other than His. Believe on Him and you will be saved. Friends, this is the God we thank. This is the God who transforms us from self-serving, appetite-satisfying people to men and women who do not seek their own, but the salvation of many. Eating is a big deal in the Bible. That's what we saw last week, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22. Where you eat and how you eat matters. Paul says, you Christians understand this. You eat the Lord's Supper. You know how much goes on. How can you say nothing goes on when you eat that meal? Eating means something. Eating meant disobedience in the garden, didn't it? And we partake of the Lord's Supper. Eating means our renewed commitment to Christ. And one day, eating will mean our final victory. That eternal triumph at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Eating's a big deal. Paul says, refuse for the sake of his conscience. Your conscience, on the other hand, your conscience must be captive to the Word of God, and your freedom, whether to eat or not, is determined by your word bound conscience. And friends, a word-bound conscience is a loving conscience and a Christ-committed conscience. And that conscience, that commitment, will sometimes, in some settings, require you to refuse a meal. Sometimes you might find yourself at a social event, a non-religious setting even, but with lots of unbelievers present, where it is commonly acknowledged what that particular meal means. When that meal has religious significance. Brothers, refuse it for the sake of the gospel and you will be amazed at how many evangelistic conversations you will have. But Paul knew that there were some people in Corinth who would judge him for eating meals at a pagan's house even though he gave thanks for it. Now, this shouldn't be surprising to us because there will always be people like this with weak consciences that need to be lovingly informed. But Paul will not allow his freedom to be determined by anything other than the word, and so he replies. Look at verse 29 to 30. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience if I partake with thankfulness Why am I denounced or slandered because of that for which I give thanks? This was probably a a situation in which some member was saying, I'm offended that you eat at a pagan's house, probably Christians from a Jewish background. And Paul says, I have given thanks to the Lord, and my freedom is not going to be determined by a wrongly informed conscience. Beloved, sometimes a point needs to be made to non-Christians in love and sometimes a point needs to be made to Christians in love. In Acts 16, verse 3, when Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him in his work among the Jews in order to give him access to certain Jewish settings, he had him circumcised. He wanted to gain a hearing for the gospel because he loved these people. Not that that circumcision meant anything. On the other hand, in Galatians 2, verse 3, when some Jews said that in order to be a Christian, you not only had to trust in Christ, but you also have to follow the law of Moses. You have to get circumcised. And Paul said, no. They pressured Titus, a Gentile, to be circumcised. And Paul vehemently refused to make a point. Guard the gospel to make it clear. Again, Don Carson writes, and I'm paraphrasing him here. Carson says, if I'm called to preach the gospel among a lot of people who are cultural teetotalers, those who abstain from alcohol, I'll give up alcohol for the sake of the gospel. But if they start saying, you cannot be a Christian and drink alcohol, I'll reply, pass the bottle of wine, please. Beloved, Scripture is important enough and the souls of people are important enough to influence what we eat and drink. Let's think Christianly and not culturally. Brothers, your conscience and my conscience should not be informed by culture, but by the word of Christ. For only the word of Christ shapes a well-informed faith working through love. A love that regulates Christian freedom with the goal of glorifying God and ministering to the spiritual needs of not just Christians, but also non-Christians by making the gospel exceedingly clear. And this brings us to our fourth and final point. God is glorified when we pursue God's agenda, just like Paul and Jesus. Look at verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Now, to do something to the glory of God means we make much of Him. We delight in God. We trust Him and we obey His Word. So take, for example, that simple act of eating. How does one eat to the glory of God? Well, you must first acknowledge that God is the one who created all things. He has provided us with food to enjoy. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So you give Him thanks for His provision. You give Him thanks for your health. You give Him thanks for your ability to work and earn and put food on the table. You not only acknowledge those things, you must also believe those things. Trust in those truths and eat in faith or you would be sinning. To do something to the glory of God doesn't require mere obedience No, it requires the obedience of faith. The faith that has been granted to us through the new covenant work of Christ. Christ who himself is the object of our faith. Who enables us to believe him. To obey him through his spirit. Friends, I want you to understand that this means that outside of Christ... An unbeliever's act of eating is an act of provocation against the Lord. Did you know that? Outside of Christ, an unbeliever's act of eating is an act of defiance against the Lord. You remember Romans 1? Because they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They do not give the triune God thanks they do not see it fit to acknowledge Him, and therefore, God gives them up. Friends, when you refuse a meal in certain settings, you have an opportunity to address this person on whom the wrath of God abides. It's a loving thing. Don't miss that opportunity. You know, verse 31 is a well-known verse to all of us, and typically when Christians cite this verse, they will say something like, whatever we do, even the mundane day-to-day activities like eating or drinking or whatever, we must do it for the glory of God. Now, that's not wrong. We should do everything to the glory of God, but that's not the primary thrust of this passage. It's good to note here that the eating and drinking that are mentioned in this context have to do with food offered to idols, with religious meals, and not eating and drinking in general. So it's good to ask, well, Paul, what do you mean? You see, this is the conclusion of the whole matter, from chapter 8 all the way to chapter 10. So do all, this is what he means, live in this way to the glory of God. This is a very practical command And as we have seen, we can either live by provoking God in whatever we do or glorify God in everything we do. Paul summarizes his argument for us. This is what he means when he says, Do it all for the glory of God. He says, Give no offense. Did you see that word in the text? Give no offense. Look at verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Our English translations make it sound like Paul is saying, be nice. Don't offend anyone. But that phrase means, don't become a cause of stumbling for anyone. That's what it means. The NIV gets this right. Do not cause anyone to stumble. We know what Jesus says about that, don't we? Matthew 18, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Paul says the same thing. He learned it from Jesus. Romans 14, verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Brothers, your actions should not lead people into sin, nor should it confirm people in their sin. Paul mentions three groups of people here Jewish unbelievers, Gentile unbelievers, and believers, the church of God. He says, Don't make it all about you, do it for the glory of God. You know, he's saying what he has already said in chapter 9, verse 22. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. We know that this is what Paul means because of the next verse. Look at verse 33. Don't cause anyone to stumble, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. You see, this tells you that pleasing everyone does not mean giving them what they want. This is not about obscuring the gospel. This is about the glory of God. Paul is not a people pleaser. If he was, he would not be a servant of Christ. He says so in Galatians 1.10. What he's saying is that he does not seek his own, but the good of another. This is how he orders his life. Look at the text. Not seeking my own advantage, his own agenda, his own benefit, his own appetites but that of many, that they may be saved. And friends, this means that if God's agenda is ours, then when it comes to thinking about the non-Christian, we ought to strive to live in a way that clarifies the gospel and commends Christ always. We do not want to engage in any action that would condone or promote idolatry and communicate to the non-Christian that allegiance does not matter. Or that their gods are actually gods. Or that we worship the same God. Or that the Christian faith is not different than theirs. And if God's agenda is ours, then when it comes to thinking about the Christian, we ought to strive to live in a way that loves them and serves them and builds them up spiritually. We strive for their encouragement and building up. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. And beloved, that means that we ought to always consider, will my actions build God's people up in their love for the Lord and for each other? Will my actions do that? Or will they communicate that I value my rights and my freedom more than anything else? Friends, I want you to note that all these Pauline priorities, they come to us with apostolic force. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Friends, I want you to see that the command to imitate Paul is trustworthy because it is a command to look to Christ himself. See, this is what Paul has been expounding for us. He has been expounding for us the mind of Christ. You remember what he says in Philippians, though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did this, as the Nicene Creed says, for us and for our salvation. For us and for our salvation. Friends, this is the love that saves us. This is the love that transforms us and this is the love that we are called to imitate. It is a cruciform love, a love that magnifies God and denies itself for the building up of others. This is a love that does not think of its own peace, or comfort, or gain, but does some very hard things. This is a love that enters into some very uncomfortable conversations with believers and unbelievers, so that they might come to faith or be sanctified. It's a love that's willing to take up an uncomfortable cross. Brothers and sisters, to imitate Christ is to have his mind. This is what it means to participate in the Spirit, to have communion or fellowship with him. Those who read his word and partake of the Lord's table, they live like this. Philippians 2 4, we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Friends, this is what it means to be a Christian, to speak and act in keeping with God's agenda, with God's redemptive purposes. Why? For we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of your Savior. May His rule and His reign be evident in all our life. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would shape and form us into a people who have the priorities of heaven. Teach us, O Lord, to live as citizens of the new Jerusalem in a world that is perishing. May we not be ashamed of the gospel, but clear in our allegiance to Christ and committed in covenant love to one another. We pray that we would do this so that the world may see your glory in and through your blood-bought church. May we not seek our own advantage, but that of many, that many may be saved. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.